This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 to 14. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and who repays in their own person those who reject him, He does not delay, but repays in their own person those who reject him. Therefore, observe diligently the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that I am commanding you today. If you heed these ordinances by diligently observing them, the Lord your God will maintain you maintain you the covenant loyalty that he swore to your ancestors. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the issue of your flock in the land that he swore to your ancestors to give you. You shall be the most blessed of peoples, that neither sterility nor barrenness among you or your livestock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commandments so that you may love one another. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Please be seated. Now we in the East have looked on in horror and sadness, haven't we, 
in the last couple of weeks at the multiple revelations of sexual assault amongst young people in our local community. One parent, talking about it with me, expressed to me her particular shock at how little empathy young men seemed to have for the girls that they were so readily assaulting, how demanding of their own needs and how little interest they were showing in anything resembling true intimacy. Now, the causes of this epidemic are multiple, but could it be that they are just expressing what we as a society have taught them about love? Now, way back in 1985, a 22-year-old, Whitney Houston, with big hair, big hoop earrings and a leather jacket, stepped up to the microphone and belted out the hymn to self-love that would become her biggest hit. Its name? The greatest love of all. Thank you. Someone listens to cheesy radio. these, These are the words. I never found anyone who fulfills my needs. A lonely place to be. And so I learned to depend on me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Now, despite the warbling schmaltz, it's a profound philosophical and psychological claim about the nature of real love, and it taps into the way we think about love now. And it would be wrong to dismiss it out of hand. Even the Greek philosopher Aristotle, way back, the 4th century BC, insisted on the necessity of self-love. It's true that a person who hates themselves is not likely to be able to express love to others. It's a good thing to be able to love oneself. When Jesus teaches us to love our neighbours as ourselves, he is assuming that we don't hate ourselves, in fact. But finding the power to love yourself inside yourself is not easy to achieve. It either creates despair because it turns out that we all have flaws or narcissism or sometimes both at the same time. And where has this led us? We have become a desperately lonely society. To say that the greatest love is loving yourself is a recipe for isolation. If you can only rely on yourself to generate love for yourself, then you will be on your own. And while we assume that it must be older people who are lonely, and they are, it turns out that it is the youngest among us who are the loneliest. According to sociologist Narina Hertz in her book just released at the end of last year called The Lonely Century, she's talking about the 21st century, one in five millennials in the US say they have no friends at all. While in the UK, three in five 18 to 34-year-olds and nearly half of kids between the ages of 10 and 15 say that they are lonely often or sometimes. These stats map onto Australia as well. As Hertz puts it, the trouble is that in an all-about-me selfish society in which people feel that they have to look after themselves because no one else will, is that we become inevitably a lonely society. Now at dinner, 
the night before he died, Jesus had a completely different take on the greatest love of all. It was a take on love that he had taught his disciples and it was a take on love that he lived himself. He says to them, Love one another how as I have loved you. The disciples of Jesus are to be known by their love for one another. Love is to be their team colours, their badge and their logo. Our master orders us to love. That is the law of the Christian life. Love one another. But what is our model of love? How are we to love? We know different types of love, and we know that that word love can mean all sorts of things. It's a word that we can use to cover up all sorts of things that we do and feel. Love may no more mean love than adult movies are an expression of mature human behaviour. But Jesus tells us something very concrete about love, very specific. He says, I am your model for love. This is Jesus' great analogy of love, his analogy of love. Love how? As I have loved you. We are to love one another following the great example of Jesus and knowing that he loves us. Rather than self-love being the basis of our love for others, the love that Jesus showers upon us, the love that he shows us, the love that he pours into our hearts serves as the true source of our love. And how does Jesus love us? Well, he says, he loves us with the greatest of all loves. Look at what it says in verse 13. He lays down his life for his friends. He tells us what he's about to do the next day, in fact. Lay down his life. Put himself aside. Now, at this moment, I can imagine that he's, in fact, we we gather from the interactions around the table that his disciples are feeling just a little bit unloved. He's about to leave them behind and and die, abandoning them to their fate, they feel. But what he is doing, he is doing for them. He gives his life for their sins. He gives himself to reconcile them to God. He lays himself down so that they might benefit. In several other places in the Bible, It says that true love is found, the truest love, the greatest love is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that Christ Jesus, just at the right time, died for the ungodly. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. The cross of Jesus Christ is love. So what does that teach us? Well, Jesus says, at the heart of great love is sacrifice. Or another way of putting it is, true love has the character of a gift If I am to love, I am to give to the other person what he or she truly needs for their sake and at my cost. In true love, 
my rights and my needs and my ego comes second, a distant second. They are not my focus. My joy is in the good of the other person. What does this require from us if we are to obey Jesus then? Will we really need to know what it is that we've received from God in Jesus so that we'll know the true nature of this great love? We'll know that we are filled with a love divine, all loves excelling, as the song goes. And we'll really need to strive to perceive one another in God so that we know what it is that the other person truly needs. I mean, love, we can sometimes call love when we give someone what we think they need, when we make them our project, right? You know, that kind of love, it's really manipulation. It's really, I'm enjoying kind of you being my project. You can think of Emma in Pride and Prejudice, not Pride and Prejudice, Emma in Emma, of course, in Jane Austen's book. Um, Loving someone, though, is not that. It isn't giving them what we think is good for them, according to our project for them. It's giving them what what we know they need to remain in Jesus Christ. It's giving them what Christ says they need. And here's the real challenge. The greatest love of all is not, with apologies to Whitney Houston, easy to achieve. It's not. It costs. For Jesus, that meant laying down his life at a very literal level on the cross. But it also meant leaving the safety of his exalted heavenly home. Those words we just announced together to one another. He left his father's side with all the privileges and rights of the son of heaven, the prince of peace, and dwelt in the grime and dirt of human society. It meant this love, humility, not ego. As C.S. Lewis once put it, to love at all is to be vulnerable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. I think that makes really good sense. The call to love one another as Jesus has loved us is not necessarily to literally die for one another, although there have been Christians who have done this, but it is a call to what many people find is a scary step, to put ourselves in the vulnerable position where we might love one another. If there's anything that's killing community, it's our fear of love. People are complicated, and that makes loving them complicated. We're afraid that our acts of love might not be appreciated We're afraid, or seen or noticed. We're afraid that if we give to meet the needs of the other, we will not have enough for ourselves. We are afraid, aren't we, in our busy, complicated time that we will just not have enough time. Love is beautiful in abstract. It's a great theory. But in reality, love can hurt. Love costs. But as John says in his letter, perfect love drives out fear. What does he mean by this? He means that to know that we've been loved by Christ with the extraordinary love that takes him to the cross gives to us the dynamic power of the love of God 
to know that he fills us with his love by his spirit gives us every assurance that we are safe in God's love, that we are held in him, that we remain in his vine, which means that as we take the risk of love, we might say, God has got us. He's got our backs. As we make ourselves vulnerable, we know we are safe. He has met our greatest need so that we can be free now to love one another. Do you, do you hesitate here? Is this perhaps more than you signed up for when you decided to come to church? We Anglicans, reflecting our Anglo-Saxon culture, have been rather good at maintaining a polite, even anonymous distance from one another, even as we worship Christ together side by side for years. We even build our buildings so we don't have to look at each other. Have you noticed that? But here is the most important command of the Christ whom you and I worship. What is it? Love one another. Not in theory. Love one another as I have loved you. At cost. Love costs Jesus his life. We're afraid that love might cost us a bit of social inconvenience or a little bit of time. I think contemporary Christians have often forgotten why they come to church. Church has become a leisure activity like so many other worthy leisure leisure activities. And so we tend to think of ourselves as spectators to the proceedings. But we gather here for the sake of others so that we might love them, which is why your presence here is so precious, why your choice Not to go to the beach this morning is so valuable, so important. Why your choice not to sleep in or go to the cafe is so extraordinary. To love as Jesus loves is to show that you've understood his command and that you've become not just his servant, but his friend. And that's what he says in verse 15, isn't it? He says there, you are my friends if you're my friends if you do what I command you. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything that I've heard from my Father. In love, you see, we actually have more than a functional relationship with Jesus. His love has made us his friends to share insight into the plans and purposes of God. It's fascinating that he uses this word friend for his disciples. I mean, more often the Bible talks about the people of God as a family, as brothers and sisters who share in the same heavenly Father. But here Jesus uses the term friendship, and he uses it as a contrast with slaves or servants. We translate the word slave as servant because we find the word slave just too confronting, but it's the word for slave. Why do we, do we, why has he done this? Well, he's called us to obey him. That's something a master would do. Ask his servants, his slaves to obey him. But Jesus hasn't called us to obey him without inviting us also into a close relationship with him. The very nature of the command that he gives us means that we're in the inner circle. We cannot follow a command to love and to love him and just remain functionally related to him and to one another. We've been made his friends. We are those for whom Christ has expressed his great love 
the greatest love of all. And we are now as his friends, given that privileged insight, that privileged spot in his inner circle, called to love with a love that is like his love. And we're Jesus' friends because he chooses us. As he says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, it's often said, you know, that's a, it's an axiom of today that you choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. You're stuck with your family, right? But you can choose your friends. In this case, Jesus says that the choosing is one way. He has chosen us to be his friends. Our friendship with him is not quite the same as another, where we might say that we both chose each other. It wasn't because of our great insight and taste that we selected Jesus as a friend, that he would die for us. Rather, he dies for us so that we might go and bear fruit. He calls us his friends. He chooses us so that we might do his work in the world. The love we share comes not from within us, but from him through us. And it also tells us this. This community of friends into which we've been grafted is not a community of members who we chose. Jesus has selected his friends, not us. We are Jesus' friends because of his grace, not because of ours. And that means the people of Christ are not our choices, but his the people who gather with you or who are in fellowship with you have been chosen by him. So, how dare you can challenge his choice? I know I want to challenge his choice often. I want to query his selections. But he's the selector, not me. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you've not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward, says Lewis, for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. How many times have we complained about Jesus' dubious taste in friends? Why does he not choose people who are less broken? People who are cooler? People who have better personal hygiene? People whose politics is less objectionable? People who don't suffer from mental illnesses and disorders of character? Why does he not choose people who are more like me, ethnically, financially, from the same school background. But that is not what he has done. He has not created an ideal community from the most promising talent. He is called sinners for whom he has died into fellowship with himself and with one another and invited them to love one another accordingly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. Wow. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them 
will create community. When we have an ideal, we're always disappointed. We always condemn. But when we just get busy with love, the love that Jesus has shown us, then we build a community of his people. That's a great way of putting Jesus' calling to us this morning. Our job, is, our job is loving those in front of us. We dare not tell Jesus that we have a better way or a better plan. We just need to get on with doing what he says. But you can see just how extraordinary this is. What an antidote this is to the lonely narcissism of our world. The dividing of society up into like segments. What an antidote this would be, this could be, to the abuse that young men have meted out on young women. The greatest love of all is not your own love of yourself. It's the love of Jesus who laid down his life for his friends and who, because of his great love for us, invites us to take the risk of loving one another. So if you've heard, if you know Jesus has called you as his, as his friend, Hear his command. Where are you making real his command to love? Where is that bearing fruit in you? Are you taking that risk, even in small ways, that Jesus took for you? Do you come to church so that you can encourage others? Do you actively seek to know people so that you can support them in Jesus Christ as they remain in him? Do you look for chances to go to the extra, the extra mile for their sake, just as Jesus went an extraordinary extra mile for your sake. Tragically, the beautiful and talented Whitney Houston could not heed the message of her own song. She said it was easy to love yourself, but it was not easy for her. She never shook the self-doubts or the drugs and in 2012 accidentally drowned in her bathtub. Her last recorded performance, however, was of a much better song, a love that I pray she, she knew, truly knew. It proclaimed the truly greatest love of all, a love that comes not from within but from without. You may know it. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.